This morning, as we begin the Advent season, I want to look at three passages of Scripture to examine a theme that we see throughout the redemptive historical narrative of Scripture and to hopefully encourage us as we prepare to celebrate Jesus' birth. Um, for those of you astute Anglicans, you'll notice that we didn't have a New Testament reading, but I have a surprise for you. The final passage I actually want us to read together. So if you would open your Bibles to Revelation 22, we'll be reading one verse. And let me just ask you to stand up, shake up the cobwebs. I know some of you are still tired from Thanksgiving dinner, and you ate a little too much, maybe that tryptophan from the turkey is still making you sleepy. Stand up, stretch your legs a little bit. It's on uh, Revelations 22. It's on page 1042 of the Pew Bibles. Revelations 22, Revelation 22, verse 20. And let us read it together. Ready? One, two, go. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I like the way the KJ, the old KJV puts it. It says, even so, come, Lord Jesus. So on this first Sunday of Advent, I want to speak to you from this topic, the God who comes, the God who comes. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we thank you this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to be gathered in your presence. We ask, O oh Lord, that now you would meet with us that you speak to us anew and afresh from your word, that we might be equipped and that we may be built up, that we may be exhorted, that we may be corrected, that in all things, O oh Lord, we would be more like you. Lord God, I ask that you will touch me, that I would decrease and you would increase. Let them behold, not Fumi, but Christ Jesus, lifted up and exalted. We pray, O oh Lord God, that you will grant me clarity of mind, concision of speech and conviction of heart, and that your people, O oh Lord, may be fed in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This season of Advent is a season with an inescapable message, and it is this that even in the midst of our sin-stained, sin-soaked world, even in the midst of repugnant moral turpitude, degradation, and apostasy, even in the midst of disease, death, and decay, even in the midst of rebellion and reviling of God, even in the midst of injustice and tragedy and wrongs all around, even in the midst of all of this, God comes. He comes to us. And indeed, the beauty of Advent, what we celebrate about Christmas, is that God came to us. God still comes to us, and he will yet come again. And this is the witness of the redemptive historical narrative of Scripture. We have what no other would-be religion can claim. We have a God who comes. He came to Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. 
even after they ate the forbidden fruit. He came to Abram and Sarai, even when he was advanced in years, and she came to understand that God could make possible our impossibilities. He came to Joshua as their captain of the unseen army, even when their numbers could not match their enemies. He came to Gideon, even in the shakedown of a Midian conflict. He came to Daniel to shut the mouths of apex predators, even when he had been unjustly accused and sentenced to death. Throughout the redemptive historical narrative of Scripture, we see God come time and time again. But how he comes, when he comes, and why he comes are the focal points of what I want to preach to you this morning. There are three things that you should know about the God who comes. First, you should know that he came. That is to say that before the first advent of Jesus Christ, there were these pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus on planet Earth to the patriarchs and the matriarchs of the faith. Second, you should know that he has come, that the definitive, transformative arrival of the babe in Bethlehem is the hinge of history. It's why we count time in B.C., and AD. It's why the world has one universal calendar. What happened before Christ and what happened after the dominion of Christ? And the last thing you should know, well, let me save that until the end. First, he came. Go with me now to the book of beginnings. Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty darkness covered the surface of the watery depths and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, and there was. So you see in Genesis, you get these radiant transcendent lights of God penetrating through creation. The sun ruled by day, the moon by night. But then you get these other outbursts of light. They are what scholars called theophanies. And theophany is a compound word. Theos means God, and epiphany means an appearance. And you get these theophanies, these God sightings. God got the world started and sustains the world. And every now and again, he interjects from eternity into time to see to it that the world turns the way he wants it to turn. He shows up every now and then to bend the arc of the universe to where he wants it. That's a theophany. They are the pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus on earth. And when he shows up, it is such awestruck wonder that human language is unable to perfectly describe it. Now, in Genesis, the language often used to describe a theophany is the angel of the Lord. The word angel simply means messengers, and that happens throughout the whole of Scripture where God sends a message through an eminent being who works in his very presence. But, but there are times, like that of Genesis 16, when the angel of the Lord refers specifically to the pre-incarnate Jesus who shows up early on to move history into the direction he wants it to move. Go with me now to Genesis 16. We prayed earlier as we lit the first Advent candle 
to the God of Abraham and Sarah. But I want to take a slight detour and look at how God came to the other woman. Y'all remember her, right? Hagar was her name. She was the handmaid, the slave of Sarah, the wife of Abram. Now, I know you know the story because you incarnation Tallahassee members, and you all faithfully and regularly gather with the saints. You all are part of a missional community. You all read your Bible on a regular basis. And you know the story. You know the story by Abraham and Sarah, but maybe you don't remember the story within the story to appreciate who Hagar was. God tells Abram, you're going to have a baby. Abram says, that's cool, God. Now, how's that going to happen? You see, before the days of Viagra and Cialis, there was very little hope for a man well advanced in years to fire off a seed that would get his wife pregnant. And Abraham is wrestling with impossibility. How is this thing going to happen? God says, oh, Abe, don't worry. I've got you covered. I'll put my super on your natural. And men have been praying that prayer every century since. But there's a problem, y'all. The baby ain't coming. So Sarah said to her husband, well, in our culture, you know, the woman who worked for me can serve as surrogates and, uh, you know, no, don't worry about it, Abe. You can have my handmaiden and she'll get pregnant and bear the child and the child will be mine. Now, rather than fight his old lady, Abe knows what's right. Happy wife, happy life. So Abe says to Sarah, sure, okay. And Abram goes into handmaiden Hagar. Hagar gets pregnant. She gets pregnant. She gets that glow that only pregnant women can have. And it's especially interesting because she gets pregnant, but her slave master doesn't. And the Bible intimates that she starts to walk around with a kind of uh, condescending look that, Sarah, I may work for you, but you can't do what I can do. Do you see it? Like a reality show. The Real Housewives of Canaan. <laughs> and this is the part where you see Sarah throw out all of Hagar's stuff out on the lawn and tells her to get out. And there Hagar is, a Middle Eastern woman in this ancient Mesopotamian metropolis, stuck pregnant, unemployed, no man to take care of her. She's bitter. She's frustrated. She's angry. She's left to die. She's in distress. She has no hope. She's by herself. And at her lowest point, out of nowhere, the angel of the Lord finds her. That's what verse 7 of Genesis 16 says, the angel of the Lord found her. Did you catch that? Are you reading your Bible with me? The text doesn't say that she found the angel of the Lord. The text does not say that she changed her address and she moved closer to God. This text says that while she's hopeless and in distress, God found her. It's as if God went looking for her when she know to go looking for God. And thanks be to God 
that this isn't the last place when God went looking for some people. I'm in a church this morning looking at all of you who God came looking for at one point in history. I'm looking at some people here today who have been dismissed and distressed and depressed and in your lowest moment when you could not pray, when you could not sing, when you could not raise your hands in worship, God found you. When you're back against the wall, when you could not see your way clear, when you were between a rock and a hard place, when Pharaoh's army was behind you and the Red Sea was before you, when all seemed lost, God found you. And truly, truly, this God is not only worthy of our gratitude, he's worthy of our praise. Come on, keeper, she's talking back to me because none of y'all are. Because <laughs> he's the God who comes to us. Now, look, look at the way God deals with Hagar in this passage. He says to her, behold, you're pregnant. Hagar says, well, gee, thanks. Tell me something I don't know. Now, before the days of ultrasound and advanced technology that can tell you what gender your unborn child was, the angel of the Lord tells her, you're pregnant with a boy. But not just any boy. He's going to be special. He's going to be a wild donkey of a man, meaning his descendants will always cause trouble. <laughs> and they will always live east of their brothers. And the angel also said to Hagar, you're going to give him the name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. Oh, don't rush past that too quickly. This verse 11 reveals to us how it was that God found Hagar because she wasn't praying, y'all. She probably didn't even know how to pray or who to pray to. She, she maybe was close to believing in Abram's invisible God before Sarah threw her out. No, Agar, Agar was not even looking for God. Yet our text says God found her, and verse 11 says, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. The original language literally can be translated, God heard your misery. Mm. And when God heard your misery and the cry of your pain went up, your location became discernible and God showed up right where you are. Can I talk to somebody this morning? Because at your lowest point, at your hardest moments, when you could not pray, when there was no song on your lips, God heard your misery. God knows the rhythm of your heart. And he knows how to get to where you are. It doesn't need Google Maps. God does not need Siri. God sees you and can geolocate you wherever you are. God gave heed to Hagar's affliction and found her. And then Hagar gives God a name. In verse 13, she says, you are the God who sees. Jehovah Roy, the God who sees. I don't see you but you see me. I may be lost, but you know where I am. And then God says, you didn't just show up to tell me about my predicament. You showed up and gave me a promise. And although I don't have the promise right now, I know that my predicament won't last. Is there anybody here today glad that when God showed up in your life, he didn't just show up, but he showed out. And he showed out with a promise that your troubles will not last, 
that surely joy will come in the morning. He is the God who came. So here in Genesis 16, we see a God who came. And we see in other parts of the Old Testament as well, other theophanies where God came, where God presented himself to man little by little, piece by piece, fragment by fragment. He, he didn't come in the Old Testament in fullness. He came in part. It's as if God kept us leave, leaving us little pieces to hold on to, making us wait until the next piece, and one piece built upon the next. But church, this would be an incomplete sermon if I left it there, if I left it just in Genesis or the Old Testament, because the theophanies of the Old Testament only make sense in light of the New Testament's incarnation. Without Christmas, the Old Testament doesn't make sense. Without the advent of Jesus Christ, nothing from Genesis to Malachi makes sense. For while God showed himself in part and in pieces in the Old Testament, we see the full and final revelation of God come to us 400 years after Malachi. It was in that late evening when the stars to sentinels over Bethlehem sky. That evening when shepherds were watching over their flock, when the heavens rolled back like a scroll and the angelic chorus started singing, that we see God has come. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. His name is called Emmanuel, Jesus, God with us. This is it, church. It's not only that he came, it's that he has come. It is that Christmas changes everything. The coming of Christ brought the presence of God to the world while also bringing the world to the presence of God. God came from way up there to way down here so that you and I can go from way down here to way up there. An Advent is a season-long preparation for the celebration that God came and that God has come. That's what the incarnation means. God sent his only son to look like us so that those who believe in him would one day look like him. God didn't come as a professor. He didn't come as a politician. He didn't come as a rich and powerful celebrity. He came as a baby, meek and low so that all mankind would have the hope of redemption. God has come. That is why we have the words that open up John's gospel, that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then in verse 14, he says, the word became flesh. Now, if there were some Jewish people in the sanctuary today, they will tell you that verse 14 of John 1 is ridiculous. It's insane, it's absolutely crazy that the logos, the beauty of God, the revelation, the wonder of God becomes vile humanity, becomes like us. And in this, we see that God has a proclivity for taking treasure and placing it among trash. Consider this with me. I read on CNN Money about a man named Nelson Molina who was in New York. He, he worked for 50 years as a garbage collector 
for the NYC Sanitation Department. He collected over 50,000 items of trash and opened his own museum because people were putting valuable things in the trash. He got baseball signed by all-star Yankee ball players. He got stained glass windows from churches that were thrown out. First edition books signed by Pulitzer Prize winning authors. He got things that are worth more money than his own retirement. And when CNN Money interviewed him, he said, it's amazing what kind of treasure you can find in the trash. And when you look at the manger in Bethlehem, you see how God put his treasure amongst trash so that trash can become his treasure. He came to make the intangible touchable and the invisible seeable. He came to make God knowable. God has come. Advent is that he came. He has come. But the last thing I got to tell you, and I'll be in my seat, is that he is coming again. Oh, Revelations 22, 12, Jesus said, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, each person according to his work. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He goes on in verse 20, He who testifies about these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I know, I know, friends that the world seems to be unraveling before our eyes, and things are getting further and further out of control. But Jesus, using the imperative voice, says, don't get it twisted, I'm on my way back. And I'm coming soon. And no human clock can tell when I will get back. I just need you to know I'm coming. I'm coming back. This is the only consolation we have in the midst of this evil world, this world's injustice, this world's sin and depravity, is that Jesus is coming soon. The assurance of the believer is here that we have a God who has not left us. He's coming back, and he's coming back to get us. The other day I read about a little boy who made a little boat out of wood made a wooden mast and put a little sail on it. And he inscribed his initials at the bottom of the boat. And he was very proud. He was very proud of his handiwork. It was very good. And he, and he dropped his little boat in the local pond in his neighborhood. And there he was, playing with his boat in the pond. But all of a sudden, a gust of wind came and snatched the boat and took it to the other side. And in the, in the distance, you could see other little boys playing. And, and he ran over around the pond as fast as he could. But when he got there, his boat was gone. What happened to the boat he created? What, what happened to the boat? He put his imprimatur on. He couldn't find it. It was gone. So three years later, when he was walking down Main Street, and he saw in the window of a pawn shop his boat. It didn't look the same, but he knew it was his boat. It didn't feel the same from the texture, but when he picked it up and looked under it, he saw his initials, his imprimatur. And he went to the owner and said, hey, 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 this is my boat. But the shop owner said, nah, that's my boat. If it's in the shop, it's mine. 
The boy replies, sir, you don't understand. I made the boat. I know the dimensions of the boat. My initials are the bottom of the boat. This is my boat. And the shop owner says, no, kid, you don't understand. That boat is in my shop. It's my boat, and if you want it, it's $25. The boy went in his pocket, pulled out his wallet, and he started to search, and there was five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, fifteen. And that was it. And he looked and said, sir, I got fifteen. And the shop owner replied, sorry, kid, it's twenty-five. The boy said, well, I'll be back. And he ran back home. And he ran back through all the stuff, looking for what he could find. And he found nothing. And so he went to his mom and said, Mom, I need $10. I got 15 But the man in the pawn shop said, has my boat, and I want it back. And it cost $25. And his mom gave him the money. And he ran all the way back to the shop. And he arrived at the shop, panting, out of breath. And he went to the checkout counter. And he slammed the money down with an attitude. And he said, it's my boat, and I want it. And it's costing me everything I've got to get it. The man says, well, here it is. You can take it. But the boy said, no. I want you to know that this is my boat. He turned the boat over and showed the shop owner his initials and said, it's my boat because I made it. But it's my boat twice because I bought it. I wonder, is there anybody here? That was your shout moment. Who knows today that God not only made you, he bought you with a price, with the redemption of the blood and the cost of his son, Jesus Christ. God has redeemed you. Somebody ought to thank God today that he was born of a virgin, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He was dead and buried, but he was raised from the grave and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. But he's coming back. He's coming back to get you. Jesus Christ is coming again. And the once crowned king, the once crowned king is coming. So I say like John said in Revelations 22, 20, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. That's consolation, friends, that even though black and brown bodies may still be plundered in these yet to be United States. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Even though cultural winds billow against religious freedom and gospel truth in our age, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Even though culture is trying to redefine gender and a man spurns his maker, saying, instead, I will remake myself a woman. Even so, Come, Lord Jesus. Is there anybody here this morning who can pray with me? Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Your marriage may not be where you want it to be, but before you go to bed tonight, pray. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Your kids may not behave. You want them to behave. They're running around your kid, your crib, like it's a Chuck E. Cheese. But even so, Come, Lord Jesus. The doctor may not give you the report that you want and that you didn't want to hear, but remember that there is another doctor who doesn't wear a white coat, but there's more medicine in the hem of his garment than all of the CVSs in the world. So you ought to 
pray. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The new year is around the corner. I can't promise sunshine and rainbows in 2022. 2022 may actually be worse than 2020 and 2021 combined. There may be storms. The billows may roll. The levees may break. But even so, come, Lord Jesus. He came in the Old Testament. He has come in the New Testament. He has shown up in your life in 2021. And our prayer this Advent season, as we join with the patriarchs and the matriarchs of old, preparing not for the first Advent, as they did, but we look to the second coming of Jesus Christ. We cry out, even so, Come, Lord Jesus, when you say with me, church, make it your hearts cry. Say it with me now. Even so, come, 